2: Welcome to Censored. I'm Eva Vrithnach, a historian reading salacious texts. This is season seven of the podcast, and what a long way we've come. 64 episodes on the best and worst of the Irish censors blacklist. From Jack Kerouac to Jackie Collins, I've read every genre of blacklisted novel. But I wanted to expand my remit a bit because the censors I've talked about could only ban publications. If it wasn't a printed book or magazine, they weren't interested. Because, of course, the Censorship of Publications Board was an arm of the state, its powers were defined in law. So the board had no power to restrict spoken speech or visual art exhibitions or theatre. Technically, there were whole swathes of Irish life where anything could be said or done, where formal limits did not apply. Of course, we know that wasn't true, because state censorship wasn't the only mechanism restricting expression. That's why this season I'm looking at censorship's older sister, censure. I'm leaving government prohibition orders to one side and exploring how ordinary, apparently decent people censured each other. Sometimes it's as dramatic as a book burning, other times it manifests as strongly worded letters to newspaper editors. Versions of censure today, you could argue, include cancel culture and before that, in the 90s, political correctness. Just so you know, I'm not doing a podcast on cancel culture because there are much better pods out there on that topic already. Check out Cancel Me Daddy if you want contemporary hot takes. I want to do something quite specific in this season. I want to look at how Irish people who were not state censors limited forms of expression. I'm interested in the ways censure limits who is seen and heard. I think often of something one of the film censors said in 1943. There are at least one million censors in Ireland. I am only the official censor. So for this season, I want to restrict the meaning of the word censorship to that formal, bureaucratic, state-led stuff and talk about social censure instead. In this first episode, I'm examining the playboy riots of 1907, an infamous clash between a theatre and an audience who denounced a play by heckling, stamping, pounding the seats with sticks and generally acting the maggot. The play in question was The Playboy of the Western World by John Millington Singh and it all happened in January 1907 in Dublin's Abbey Theatre. The standard interpretation of this almost week-long Rue Le is that a daring, sexually frank play offended nationalist Holy Joes so much that they rioted. It seems to ominously prefigure formal state-led censorship, the sort of stuff I've been talking about all along. You could argue that the historical origins of a culture of taking offence emerged in the Playboy Riots. It looks like a sexually repressive, prudish Ireland made her spectacular debut in the Abbey Theatre that week. Or rather, his debut, because the Playboy Riots have an extremely strong macho energy. I'm just going to summarise the plot of the Playboy very briefly here. Christie is the Playboy. He kills his da, goes on the run, confesses to the crime and becomes the local stud. All the girls and women in the play fawn on him. Peggy and Mike dumps her fiancé so she can be free to marry Christy. The widow Quinn is all over him like a rash. Two other single young women flirt outrageously with him. He tells his story of splitting his father open with a shovel more than once, revelling in the attention. Unfortunately for Christy, the plot twist is that Da is not dead. The desperate young fella tries to kill him again and fails again because you just can't kill the patriarchy. All the girls are pure disgusted that he's not the father-killing hero of their dreams, so he gets a fierce slagging off. At the very end, Christy and the unkillable Da leave together, somewhat reconciled. Peggy and Mike ends the play with the famous line, Oh my grief, I've lost him surely. I've lost the only playboy of the Western world. I've done a two-part deep dive on this. Firstly, I'm going to analyse the play and then the riots. In this episode, I'm talking about the play itself, checking whether it contained offensive material and if it was saying anything provocative. Part two, on the riots themselves, is already up on Patreon if you're desperate to hear how it ends. Otherwise, you'll just have to wait till next week. To explore the Playboy Riots, I'm joined by Dr Lloyd Maeve Houston from the University of Alberta, where they are Banting Postdoctoral Fellow. And they've graced the podcast before, rating the filth of both James Joyce and Samuel Beckett. So check out those past episodes too. Hi Lloyd, welcome to the podcast again. (laughs)
1: you can't keep me away
2: no i mean we're just gonna have to bring you on as a rolling guest
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so slow slowly becoming a permanent fixture
2: (laughs) and so we're dealing with the playboy this time which i'm really excited about because i didn't like seeing much but i watched this and i'm kind of a bit of a convert now i'm impressed
1: fabulous i'm no i'm so very glad it's uh i definitely remember you know when i was growing up like finding it kind of infuriating how like ubiquitous that play was and how you know it seemed like Irish drama was reducible to this one play and one controversy but like um by the time I kind of came to study it in depth I was like nah nah it's it's actually quite good <laughs> yeah <laughs> frustratingly satisfying experience with a lot of layers to it <laughs>
2: yeah so the drink for to go with the the play or the, the, or The Riot, actually, I suppose you could say both. Um, I was thinking Spirits because Peggyn always seems to be doling out shots to everybody.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a playthrough which uh, a fair amount of, like, pochy. I mean, it's, you know, it's set in a shebeen, right? It, it, it is literally, you know, kind of drink is, is permanently within arm's reach. And then you've also got um, even sort of off um Peggyn's Da um, kind of heads out to and rolls in from Awake where, we're, we're, where we're, we're told you'd never see the match of it for flows of drink the way when we sunk our bones at noonday in our narrow grave. There was five men, I, and six men stretched out, wretched and speechless on the holy stones. <laughs> <laughs> a classic um, image of a really good Irish funeral, isn't it? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, Singh loves boozy wicks like he um, in in the Aran Islands as well. He sort of documents um, funeral culture and just how like rowdy um, it gets. So it's definitely something that he's uh, very, very alive to and and invested in.
2: (laughs) So with our spirits in hand, we shall turn and do censorship bingo. Normally, I do censorship bingo at the end, but I kind of feel this time we have to talk about the content of the text a bit before we get to the riots.
1: Yes, I I, I think that um, uh, it is worth knowing in advance what what irks people <laughs> about this because there's a fair amount. Although, actually, I think it's a, it's also it's an interesting one because in some ways, like censorship bingo, I think this will. Exposed to some extent, the difference that like form makes as well, right? Like what what is acceptable or unacceptable on stage um, is is different, I think, from um, what flies in print, mm-hmm. um, as much as like similar kind of you know anxieties animate both. And I, and I think this is possibly where your your sort of censored versus censured um, distinction beca- can become quite interesting. But um, but yeah, so I mean, well, uh, which which ones did you spot, or do, or do you want me to to kind of start off? Or? Well,
2: I thought surely there was breasts in it, but then I was like, were there? I don't think so.
1: Um, well, there are they are alluded to. There, um, I mean, um, there's lots of fine
2: fine figures of lad of ladies, you know, like lovely girls. If you want a lovely girls competition. <laughs> there's there's a good one
1: happening sure, here they're all lovely girls <laughs> no I, I i no absolutely i mean the um uh well we'll we'll t- we'll talk more about i think just the kind of like sexual vivacity of the women and how much of a problem that poses but um so while, while i mean well certainly no one's like getting their getting their um tits out on stage or, or anything <laughs> i think God, that, can you imagine uh, <laughs> Um, wardrobe malfunctions, uh, fortunately uh, avoided um, in in that initial run. But um, I think breasts and what happens with them is a kind of area of concern, and it's not even something that like gets seems to get picked up much in in the the, the sort of media response to it. But mm. to my mind, is one of the most scandalous things about the play. Um, so there's a point kind of uh, in the first act where the Widow Quinn is um, has sort of come to uh keep an eye on, on Christine Pagin um at the invitation of Sean Coe um and and, and uh, Father Riley um and Pagin is, is is irked by this and in order to sort of get the Widow Quinn out of the way she um she talks about how or, you know, tries to kind of put Christie off um, the widow Quin by saying, doesn't the world know you reared a black lamb at your own breast so that the Lord Bishop of Connaught felt the elements of a Christian and he eaten it after in a kidney stew? On the one hand, the, the, you know, the, the image of um, a woman um, who is, it, it, it's heavily, well, not even heavenly blind, just openly stated has murdered her husband, who, uh, it, the image of her, like, suckling a lamb at her own breast is already sort of, boundary transgressing enough, but then the way that that's inserted into a kind of community so insular that like the Bishop of Connaught is brought into like very close proximity to her breast kind of metonymically through the lamb um, <laughs> that he eats and then this kind of this like disquieting sense of everything being kind of insular and interconnected then picks up because there, there's a sort of point um slightly later in that conversation. Um, where the widow Quinn sort of hits back by saying, or, you know, tries to kind of put um, Christy off the by saying, um, well, you know, she's waiting only on a sheepskin parchment to be wed with Sean Kyo of Killikin. So this just sort of mm, like... More sheep again. Yeah, I'm not saying it's the same sheep, but it's, it's like this sort of odd sense that, like, you've got this kind of line of, of connections from her breast through to, like, this... Um, Impending marriage between um, Sean and Begeen, which we'll also talk about because it's also objection, potentially <laughs> quite objectionable. Um, or I guess maybe we can just talk about it now, which is that um, it's. I don't think it's 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 not on the the bingo card. I but don't like-
2: have incest, you know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes
1: I've been like, why didn't I think of putting that on it? Because it turns out it's quite a thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, um, so, I mean, it, yeah, incest and inbreeding is, again, it's not something that's, like, heavily foregrounded in the the scandalised response to the play, but to my mind, it's a kind of disquiet, another disquieting thing, or I think it's definitely, like, in the background of what makes the play so sort of irksome to the people who, um, who who kind of protest it. So, very early on, um, before, um, Christie's sort of arrived in the, shooting, we have this conversation between Sean and Pagin, where, um they're discussing their their forthcoming nuptials and he says aren't we after making a good bargain the way we're only waiting these days on father riley's dispensation from the bishops of the court of rome so obviously like no one these days is likely to enjoy hearing their impending marriage described as like a good bargain um and that kind of like you know that kind of commercial element i mean obviously we're a long way from sex work but that sense of like you know relationships being governed by um kind of financial interest Um, these
2: kind of arranged marriage kind of ideas
1: yes which which you know if you look at um, the sort of demographic data like was a a feature of of irish like post famine irish um kind of marital patterns are really dictated by you know keeping a hold of land Mm -hmm. consolidating property and produce these marriages between like crusty old men and, and very young you know relatively speaking young women but if, if you sort of move past that, um, you know, the, the way that like the the local priest and the Vatican are determining what the marriage, again, seems a bit suspect. Um, but maybe to a modern ear, we might miss quite what's being signaled here. So beyond just, um, you know, the, the mercenary character of the relationship and Sean's undue deference to the church, um, we've also got um, the need for a papal dispensation. And, I think for a Catholic audience of that day, that would have been a big red flag. Because they're first or
2: second cousins, aren't they? Yeah,
1: the proposed union violates the prohibition against consanguineous marriage, <laughs> um, which if we turn to our copy of the Catholic Encyclopedia, which I you know we all have to, to <laughs> of,
2: of course. <laughs> I mean, just behind me, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: We'll, well, we find that um, consanguinity is a deramant impediment of marriage as far as the fourth degree of kinship inclusive and the fourth degree as you say is yeah it's um it's first cousins so um yeah i mean you know the it, like first degree of consanguinity you got your parents and children then and, and then second is like siblings grandparents etc but um but yeah so for so um so, given that they're roughly the same age and they aren't siblings or whatever, it seems most likely that Sean and Begin are clearly like cousins. Yeah. Um, and if we turn to the, if you turn to the, uh, either if you had the program in front of you in that first performance, or if you look at the, the you know, the kind of character listing in, in published editions, um, we'll see they're listed as second cousins. Uh, so Sean is their second cousin, although in some editions it is first cousin. And as I say, that kind of you know papal dispensation thing seems to position them even closer than maybe the the printed material. Around the play is prepared to suggest. What Christie walks into is like a breeding pool that is seemingly so shallow that the only person that Pegin can be kind of wed to um is this thoroughly, you know, kind of unprepossessing um and excessively sort of god fearing um member of her own extended family who seems to be largely marrying her for monetary reasons. (laughs) Um, So the picture, you know, the picture of the play kind of seems to paint of, you know, the marital prospects and sexual prospects of um, what is, I mean, we'll talk about the role of the West in, um, you know, the play and in the response to it, but, you know, in, in what is supposedly the kind of heartland of, you know, an uncontaminated, authentic Ireland it's um it's basically just to present them as like a bunch of you know inbred bumpkins <laughs> um, practicing clerically sanctioned incest <laughs>
2: um, yeah, and all of that like in literally the opening scenes of the play
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so from from the word go it's um you know sing comes out swinging in terms yeah. Of, um, and then I mean, and that incest um sort of. It, it crops up um in in different ways a bit later on as well so like christy whenever he's um you know at several different points in the play christy in in these sort of rhetorical set piece moments like explains why he killed his father and we get slightly different versions of that story mm-hmm. depending on the audience he's telling it too but one version of the story he gives um whenever he's talking to the widow quinn and um in their sort of seduction scene he talks about how he um he kills his dad because his dad's trying to kind of hook him up with um, oh, yeah, the widow Casey. Oh yeah, a
2: arranged marriage, isn't it? Yeah. yeah,
1: A walk in terror from beyond the hills and she two score and five years and 200 weights and five pounds in the weighing scales with a limping leg on her and a blinded eye and she a woman of noted misbehaviour with the old and young. Oh dear. <laughs> but the reason that he says he won't marry her is um, because when all knows, she did suckle me for six weeks when I came into the world. Oh no! Ah. Yeah. <laughs> So she's this wet nurse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and and so and you know so Christie becomes a bit like that lamb at the breast of widow Quit. like it's, you know, it it's a play that like proliferates these these images of like you know, inappropriately proximate.
2: Yeah, everyone's just a bit too close to each other, aren't they? It's just yeah. like ugh, <laughs> creepy. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and um and like unhealthy you know Singh is for for a variety of reasons both kind of like in terms of the broader you know scientific and medical context but also just i i think in his own kind of um so you know Singh has um a sort of famously poor constitution he's quite unwell throughout his life he dies of hodgkin's disease it's he only learns relatively close to um his death that that's actually what the issue is um but so he's kind of haunted if you it, there are sort of fragments of his. I um, mean, he, he dabbles with writing an autobiography. And if you look at those sort of writings, he's very he has this like painful awareness of being, you know, quote unquote, unhealthy or like um uh, unwell. And he's he's very conscious of the ways in which those conditions can be kind of inherited. Like, me- broadly speaking, medical science in that period is very in- invested in ideas of of heredity um, You know, with a kind of emerging Darwinian sort of inflection to that. And so Singh's very conscious of how, you know, um sick parents produce sick offspring in, in, in this sort of language. And so it's a play in which, yeah, just all of this kind of sense of like everyone being too genetically close for comfort mm. and too physically close to comfort. Too
2: physically involved with each other. I mean, to marry your wet nurse is really... <laughs>
1: Um, it's just gross <laughs> so, there's, so there's yeah and so there's there's like a version of the way Christie presents himself I, I, you know his kind of father destroying is also like this big swing against um almost kind of heredity or like the impositions of mm. hered, you know he is his sort of he's swinging his lawyer about in a in a very sort of Virile way that that seems to suggest his um, you know his kind of iconoclastic um, sexual vitality, um, which seems to be part of what makes him such a an appealing prospect. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore.
2: Well, you know, I was going to put uh, the widow Quinn and the sheep under the bestiality heading. I was kind of like, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, could could it really go like I know it's breastfeeding, but it's also it's it's more transgressive than just, you know, it seems to be something kind of <laughs> quite sexual. And I think we could probably take that one, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think that that's the other thing as well, right, Is is that it's a play that as much as, obviously, it clearly doesn't fully succeed in this game, or maybe it succeeds only too well, It it is partly just seems to be very kind of animated by a desire to, like, see what it can smuggle on stage yeah. and then produce an atmosphere that means that it's, like, it's half a joke, but it's not a joke, and it's sexual, but it's not. No, and the, yes. you know, the interplay of, like, undertone and overtone is... uh I mean you know, delicious. Like it's really it it has a lot of fun, but it means that like yeah, once, once you start drilling down to it, it's um it you know, as much as the um the the riots, quote unquote, do seem like this sort of prudish overreaction. Um yeah, it's a weird place actually. Like it's
2: <laughs> it's quite I found it really quite compelling and when I was watching it I was like, I should be really annoyed by this because this, this um excessive dialect thing can really get in my nerves. But I'm actually totally into it. You know, it's it sucks you in and it kind of does. There are so many suggestive moments where you go, hang on, di- no, maybe not. And it's gone. And then they're onto something else. And you think, hmm, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, I'm here for the ride. So I'll just... <laughs>
1: No, Hang absolutely. On. I think. I mean, it's also one of the things that it's it's something that that gets the play into trouble. I mean, we can maybe um, you know later kind of itemize exactly what seems to prompt the most stringent objections. But yeah, that that sort of rhetorical exuberance, and then it not quite being clear what's explicitly or implicitly being said combined with the increasing din that attends the play like the play you know the the longer the protests go on the more inaudible the play becomes the more people just kind of hear in it what they want to hear yeah. so um there's a point where there, there's a moment where one of the actors has to like send a letter into uh one of the Dublin papers I can't remember which being like I didn't say fucking on I, I, I said that's I've been I've been grossly misquoted um, he says like you know dirty I, I can't remember what it is Like it, it's like dirty, it's something alliterative but it, you can see how amid a room full of people stamping and playing bugles and screaming that yeah. like um, it could be misheard but it's
2: it's the perfect <laughs> play really if you're dirty minded I have to say because you really will get a lot of filth out of it if you're prepared to consider it filthy in the first place <laughs> and the next one is sex work now like there is a lot of commercial relationships in you know in marriage and all of that but is there actual any references to actual sex work
1: no not um nothing is sort of formalized as that i think it's 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 a play that's like and i think the response to it is sort of haunted more by the kinds of anxieties around like unmarried young women um that um you know um the the sort of figure of the single girl as someone sort of i guess like proximate to sex work like i i I mean there's a you know there's a whole sort of history here that um you you could dig into but obviously you know i mean maria lovey does excellent work around the history of, of sex work in ireland where she sort of teases out how a real figure of concern is the so-called sort of casual um yes, who is you know uh, yeah the amateur who you know um kind of at moments of financial necessity um may engage in sex work but isn't you know that 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 that's not their sort of permanent source of income um and who exists in this sort of liminal space between respectability and 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 its obverse um and it seems like yeah, the the ways in which the eagerness with which all the women in this play respond to Christie, <laughs> in like the the surreal excitement <laughs> that's
2: it's generated, really by over the he killed
1: your dad? Like, oh yeah, <laughs> wow, well, he's hot, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, um, that um that kind of exuberant sexual appetite, um, and that kind of framing of women as as, as sort of sexual agents is obviously quite a distance from. Commercialised sex, in some senses, but I think if if we're trying to kind of triangulate it within the sort of cultural imaginary of, of Ireland in that period, I think that there's definitely like a continuum that exists there, um, yeah. but not a yeah. Um, and certainly, I mean, the widow Quinn particularly is just very happy to be like, you know, look, right, come on up to my high scene. Don't marry Pagan. She'll she's a nightmare. But look, I'll put you up. Uh, like she, She's almost kind of employing him. It's like a yeah. kind of jiggler who, like, you know. Yeah, I'll feed and house you. You just need to hang out with me.
2: It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, you see, can we can we tick it then, do you think? Is this part of the problem with the censorship bingo for a, yeah, a play like this? That it is quite suggestive and brings out a lot of themes but doesn't actually you know nail its colors to the mast and in the same way maybe a book would
1: yes I I I think so and I think part of it's the game it plays with its audience is that sort of proximity or you know Mm -hmm. there there is something kind of flirtatious (laughs) about the way
2: it... it is actually that is precisely what it does
1: and it teases the whole time no, absolutely. Yeah. And it's and and you know, and you have like long passages in the play that are actually really concerned with that, like the way that like, I mean, you know, it's a play that's structurally oriented around a succession of seduction scenes. Right. Like it, it, each act is almost the same narrative shape as the succeeding act. It just seems mm-hmm. to go a little farther or things, you know, yes. um, get taken more or less literally um, with, you know, ultimately sort of catastrophic um effect but like when christy arrives in the shabine um and is being really coy like he does that you know there's this sort of rhetorical striptease about even what he's done yeah. um, where you know everyone who's in the Shabine is like having a guess so it's like you know maybe he followed a young woman on a lonesome night and Christie's like oh saints forbid mister i was all times a decent lad <laughs> um maybe the land was grabbed from him and he did what any decent man would do um and you know and, and christy's like no i'm too rich from that you know <laughs> it's, um, my dad was a strong farmer thank you very much um did you strike golden guineas out of soldier young fellow um he's, again you know he's uh, or did you marry three wives maybe so the, the, you know it, 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 there's this constant sort of um deliberate yeah i, I think teasing is, is exactly the right word for it sort of play with like what christy did or didn't do and you know what did or didn't happen and even even the kind of like you know schrodinger's parasite is um, <laughs> is it's, 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 it's exactly this um, you know, it, it, obviously Pagin famously says, you know, there's a great difference between a Gala story and a dirty deed done in your own backyard but, like, the play exists in exactly the, the, the liminal space between those two things yes. and kind of flirts with collapsing that distinction but also likes to keep it operative <laughs> like it's the sort of the, the, the gap between the two spark plugs that lets everything crackle.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah Oh, yeah. I mean, I just can't believe how good it is, actually. <laughs> I was not expecting to enjoy it quite this much. <laughs> and I'm especially enjoying how it's collapsing censorship bingo so effectively. I think this is great fun. <laughs> just burn it, just throw it out. I feel like it should nearly get, you know, the 15 out of 25 and five for extra teasing. <laughs> it could really do a full house. Um <laughs> So let's quickly then do you want to just say what other ones really strike you out of the card then cuz i don't think there's in a way let's let's just abandon the concept of the card and just take something that really jumps out
1: yeah i mean well i, I suppose um it's there's a, a felt sense of obligation to acknowledge the what notionally precipitates all the ruckus right yeah. so you know if anyone i suppose knows anything about this play or I don't know if you if you were like a desperate kind of leaving search student you had to like quote one word from it you would you would always have the word shift ready shift, to hand yeah. right shift in um in the sense of um a term for a woman's undergarment not the sense of um, giving someone the shift um, which for non-Irish people means snogging them <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah so you know f- famously um, on the the sort of um, Saturday night on which the, the play premieres Lady Augusta Gregory, who, um, who's one of the heads of the sort of, um, the Abbey, she sends two telegrams to WB Yeats, one kind of at the halfway point, um, uh, and the other at the conclusion of the show, um, Yeats is, is, is away in business. And the first one says, you know, plays a success audience are, are, are enjoying it, you know, it's getting laughs where it should basically. Um, but the second one is audience broke up at word shift. what, That is referring to is a moment late in the play after Christie has gone out, killed his seemingly killed his father for a second time. um, And everyone's getting ready to, either well, turn him over to the authorities, stroke, um, you know, uh, extrajudicially hang him. Christie, um, you know, is convinced that having killed his dad again, Pagin will, will once again sort of welcome him with open arms. Um, He sort of refuses to leave, um, saying it's I'm seeking only. And what did and what did I care if you brought me a drift of chosen females standing in their shifts itself, maybe from this place to the eastern world? Um, So, you know, even if you presented me with a all the women in the world, yeah, all in their underwear um, from here to the horizon, I wouldn't move, which is itself a kind of reference to i think something to holland says like it's it's or like one of okay. the, his, his sort of heroic trials so, so there is a kind of you know it's another instance of saying something very provocative but in a way that actually has some kind of grinding in or you know a, a notional justification but this image of you know um astrela women in de facto lingerie proves notionally unacceptable W. G. Fay, who played Christie in that first production, didn't help matters by flubbing the line. So instead of saying a drift of chosen females, he said a drift of Mayo girls, which made it, you know, more kind of concrete and s- situated in the real world. The slight difficulty with that is, um, as a, as as a kind of explanation of what goes on, is that actually the audience have been kind of losing their shit from earlier than this. Um, so by the point that um, that Christie's dad has reappeared on the scene, that they've been kind of unsettled on that first night. Um, and then by the time Christie goes out and um, uh, lops his dad's head again, um, basically from there, the audience. Um, ben Labitas, who's a, a, a sort of Irish theater historian, he, he talks about how by that point, the kind of. In a way that Singh seems to have engineered, the mob violence on stage is mirrored by the kind of unrest in the audience and there's this kind of um deliberate breakdown between um you know the fourth wall basically collapses Mm. at that point and so the the shift kind of reference is just the icing on the cake in fact actually it seems like if you read the um the freeman's journal um which is that first their review of the play or their first sort of account of the um the disturbances they don't actually mention it because i don't think they hear it (laughs) (laughs) there's too much commotion really (laughs) However, well, but it, it's also that there are several shifts um, and references to, to shifts that, that that cause an issue. Um, so th- there is a um, there's a clearly spurious letter from a, a Western. Well, it was a, oh. someone claiming to be a Western girl in the Freeman. That's clearly yes. just the same. Like, um, I mean, you know. I, in a, in a debate that's all about, like, how Irish women are being ventriloquized, it's really funny that, you know, people keep ventriloquizing Irish women to, like, critique the play. Uh, but, <laughs> Isn't
2: it a Western girl, too, as well? Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, what? <laughs> it's more than I mean, one of you pretending to be a Western girl? Fair enough. <laughs>
1: um, but um, but she she says this notional Western girl says in the Freeman's Journal, every character uses coarse expressions and Miss Olgood one of the most charming actresses I've ever seen, is forced before the most fashionable audience in Dublin to use a word indicating an essential item of female attire, which the lady probably would never utter in ordinary circumstances, even to herself.
2: <laughs> right yeah of course she wouldn't refer to her underwear sarah olgood,
1: yeah has has no linguistic frame of reference for her underwear <laughs> <laughs> like cannot even conceptualize um but that, i mean that that's a, a reference to your point in the play so um sarah olgood played widow quinn uh yes because she
2: talks about sewing a shift doesn't she
1: Yes. Yeah, so in, in act two, whenever, um, she's, um, putting the moves on, on Christy, um, and he's sort of saying like, you know, well, what, what would I be, what would I be doing if I were to, to go with you? She says, ah, uh, you'll be doing like myself. I'm thinking when I did destroy my, my man. Well, she says she shouldn't stay with pigging because you'll murder her. So she's like, you'll be doing like myself. I'm thinking when I did destroy my man from above, many is the day, odd times and great spirits, broaden the sunshine, darning a stocking or stitching the shift and odd times again, looking out for the good. blah, blah, blah. So in the midst of this, again, you know, kind of, murderess trying to seduce murderer um, moment there's this you know kind of just passing reference to to undergarments which um, apparently should not even belong in the vocabulary of an of, Irish woman of the people who wear them they shouldn't even know what those things are but, but I, suppose there, the, I think also what, what that does get at is the sense that like there's something about but you made an Irish woman say that word out loud Publicly. in public yeah and that you know so um the question of like what happens when things are put on stage um is a big kind of issue for um for for the 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 riots um but also for the play itself right there's a lot of you know kind of readings of this play critically where people talk about how it's you know it's all about the construction of an irish audience or like what that means and you know um it's not for nothing that the play is consistently structured around Christie kind of selling a different story of himself to a receptive audience or like tale you know Mm. uh, uh, and then how you know as as i was saying the play seems to kind of anticipate its own reception like the point at which it stages the thing it's about yeah it's on stage audience try to like close down what's happening and then that prompts the off stage you know it's it's um, it's not for nothing that that um, you know Ben Ben Lavitas calls it a sort of hall of mirrors.
2: <laughs> I suppose for me the crime aspect really struck me when I watched it. That the Widow Quinn—they keep talking about her destroying her man—and I'm like, no one complained about this at all when they were writing in letters and saying how awful the play was. They all said that Christie killed his dad, but yeah. nobody said that the Widow Quinn killed her husband and everyone knows and everyone seems fine with it apart from slagging her off no one turned her over to the police nothing happened it's like what and in the complaints about the play they're like how dare you suggest that Irish people would tolerate criminality we are well known for a not being criminal and b hating criminals and you're like but <laughs> okay the thing you're only complaining about half of the crime in the play and also historically you know you know, you could say within the colonial context in particular, a lot of people in the society are quite relaxed about breaking rules as long as you have a good reason to break them. And it's a communally accepted reason. And what's the commonly accepted reason for the widow Quinn killing her husband? <laughs> no one tells us.
1: Well, I mean, you know, apparently she like nicked him with a shovel and it seems to have given him tetanus or something, you know, it's, it's a, uh, but it, yeah, it an no, accident.
2: it's,
1: <laughs> No, but I mean, you're, you're completely right that, um, and I mean, it, 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 if we look at the, like, response to the play, as you say, one of the things that's, that, that obviously provokes scandal is A, the fact that the parasite in itself, um, the kind of joyous, like, the exaltation with which it's greeted, particularly the kind of sexual exaltation that it receives among the, um, the play's female cast, um, you know, and, and like, there, the play gets some gets some really funny kind of moments out of that. Um, like, that whenever, the minute Christie basically mentions he's killed his dad, they're like, right, we need to employ this man. Like, yeah. he, he's, he's our pot boy. <laughs> um, so, you know, Peguine says, ah, that'd be a lad with a sense of Solomon to have for a pot boy, Michael James. You know, she <laughs> talks about if I'd let that, that lad in the house, I wouldn't be fearing the loose khaki cutthroats of the Walking Dead. And,. Whenever Christie's like asked if he shot his father, he's like, no.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and
1: 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. I don't have a license for a weapon. I'm a law-fearing man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right, yes, of course you are, <laughs> so you know it the, the play is again very much in on the joke, uh, by its own kind of engagement but as you say, I think one of the things that that is that that kind of animates this is an awareness that um particularly in the kind of British cultural imaginary, the Irish are basically by this point synonymous with criminality, right
2: mm, hooligans yeah, riots, yeah.
1: the whole fighting, the Phoenix park murders, you know you you name it there's um and and the figure of, you know, I mean, parnalism as it was presented in the English popular press was very much framed as just a sanction for kind of criminal violence. Um, and, 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 this sort of total breakdown of law and order. So yeah, there's, there's this sense that, um, having an Irish community welcome and conceal a criminal is only serving to like sanction, um, the, these kind of hibernophobic caricatures. Um, I mean, saying obviously, has the, the kind of last word on this in that he's just like, well, this is just based on something that I was told on Aaron. Um, yeah. They, it happened already, lads. They, they sheltered a murderer and, uh, you know, happily tried to kind of get him away to America, you know, so it's just facts. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and um, if you look at the, you know, his notebooks from, from on Aaron, he, he, you can see where that story originates and you can see it captures his, his kind of imagination. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, again, it's it's not clear whether the widow Quinn's criminality is sort of overlooked out of whether that's a kind of form of decorum, like they don't even want to further intensify the slander on Irish womanhood or they just miss it. Or they're too worked up about other things.
2: <laughs> it's, it's, There's so much to get worked up about. There just isn't time to accommodate all their
1: criticisms. I mean, she, she's she's described as like a coarse virago by that uh, by that uh, that um, Western girl. We've we've quoted or notional Western girl, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it's um, no, it's a play, yeah, that that that's definitely kind of concerned with with crime and like. Crimes proximity to like sex as well and mm. violence, uh, yeah. and
2: that that crime can be sexy, very sexy.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and again, the play has so much fun. Like the 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 kind of curtain line for Act One is like, I sure shouldn't have killed my father before. Like you know, if, if a known I was going to get this response. Uh, <laughs> If
2: I'd known I was going to turn into the local stud, I would have done this years
1: ago. Um, or like, um, uh, you know, Begin's um, dad is like, you know, you expect me to welcome welcome this this father slayer into into my family? I'm not going to become his father-in-law. That's a dangerous position. <laughs> this guy's got a taste for it now. Oh God! I mean, it is it is
2: both very silly and very clever at the same time, and it's. It's, it performs an amazing trick, I think, like that, the way it just catches you and you laugh at it and then you go, oh, actually, if you think about it, that's quite thats quite interesting how it ties back into so much else. And that's the play itself, which was unexpectedly cleverly offensive. Singh included some pretty disgusting images from breastfeeding lambs for the bishop's table to Christie potentially marrying his wet nurse. I wonder if these moments were too awful or too quick to register with critics who preferred to talk about crime and underwear instead. So the next episode will be on the riots themselves, documenting the wildest week in Irish theatre history. There was rowdy singing, police arrests and a patronising speech by WB8s. This had everything. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy.